Don't we appreciate Millard and Dallas when they play the piano for us? You know, I was just thinking as Raymond came up here and said he thanked God that really had found this church. Raymond, we're thankful you did too. You are a blessing to us, my brother. Well, we're kind of in an interlude, an interlude between summer and fall. You know, for churches, the new year is not January 1st, but it's the first week after Labor Day in September. When all the new programs and everything we're going to be doing for the coming year are launched. So this Sunday, next Sunday, we're sort of in an interlude. (laughs) Many of our folks are still on the road and gone. Actually, four elders are absent today. I think at least four, maybe more. Uh, Folks are gone. So I thought, you know, as we are in this kind of interlude... What a more appropriate time to just take a morning and ask ourselves, who are we, and why are we who we are? (laughs) We call ourselves a New Testament church, and why is that? Anyone who focuses at any time meditating upon the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, has to be haunted by that high priestly prayer in John 17, in which our Lord passionately prayed to the Father that the apostles whom he had been training would all be one, even as he and the Father are one. And then he said, "Not I pray not only for these, but also for those who would come to believe, who would be mine because of their word, that they, that is this church, for example, that today the present-day Christians might be one, Father, as you and I are one. Does that prayer ever haunt you? It does me. And we look today across the world and find that prayer is far from answered. There are Roman Catholic churches, Eastern Orthodox churches, Lutheran churches, Calvinist Reformed churches, Presbyterian churches, Baptist churches, Assembly of God churches, Methodist churches, all sorts of independent. We could go on and on, couldn't we? Far from the fulfillment of that prayer. And here we are at TCF. And we've established a church. And we have to ask ourselves, are we in some way adding one more division by starting something instead of being a part of one of those that already exist. The last thing any true disciple of Jesus ever wants to do is to divide the body of Christ. And here we are. So as we think about that, and we are an independent church, 
we ask, should we, in order to do something toward the fulfillment of that prayer of Jesus, go ahead and join one of those that already exist? Would that please God? And then we have to ask, which one? (laughs) Which one? That's a serious question. Because someday we're going to have to answer to God for how we answered that question. This morning I want to examine that question with us. And to the very best of our degree to try to discover what is God's answer. And the place we have to begin is in Matthew chapter 16. An episode that took place when Jesus and the disciples entered Galilee. And he asked them, who do men say that I am? And they responded, well, some say you're John the Baptist or Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this unto you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say unto you, and it's interesting, Jesus spoke Aramaic. So what he said was, you're kephas, which means stone. And Matthew, in quoting Jesus, quoted, translated his Aramaic into Greek. And today we have the English translation of the Greek. Kephas, Petras in Greek, which means stone. Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah, For flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but the Father which is in heaven. And I say unto you that you are Kephas. And I give to you, and the Greek is second person singular. I give to you, Peter, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And then he said, and upon this rock, not stone, but rock, a bedrock, so to speak, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, not hell, but Hades, will not prevail against it. Hades is the abode of the dead. It'll never be able to hold it. We'll come forth. The expression that catches our attention in this is the expression, I will build my church. And the way that Matthew quoted Jesus Aramaic is by these words, Oikododo meso, mu ton ecclesion. That's important. In Greek, how words are arranged in a sentence is not the way we would do it. If you read Greek from an inner letter to your New Testament, you notice how it's all lined out and how they get all of that. Well, it happens because the endings of words show you how they relate, not the order they are in the sentence, unless you want to emphasize something. 
And if you want to emphasize something, you take a word where one would normally fit it and move it forward, indicating that is what you're emphasizing. And so in this passage, the normal way that you would say, I will build my church, you would say, ton ecclesion mu, the church of me. But Matthew took the mu and put it in front of ton ecclesion. So it says, I will build my, the church. In other words, I'm going to build it. It's going to belong to me and no one else. Therefore, he is the only authority. The question we have to face as we seek to be the church that Jesus Christ wants, we have to ask, what is your authority for doing what you do? And so as we look at the various churches that do exist, we have to ask, what is their authority? Do they in some way display that ultimate authority of Jesus? Now remember that Jesus Christ, for three and a half years, selected his construction crew and for three and a half years, he trained them. He gave them his plan, his blueprint, shall to say. He told them how to build it. And he even said, I will purchase the materials with my blood. Acts twenty twenty eight brings that out. And then prior to his ascension, he said, there are a lot of things I've said to you over the years that you don't remember. And there are a lot of things I said to you that you remember but you don't understand. But after I ascend, I will send the Holy Spirit and He will be my supervisor, so to speak. And He will cause you to remember everything I said. And what you remember you don't understand, He'll make you understand it. So what you do and teach and build will be exactly my church not someone else's. And so it is through the apostles that that church came into existence. Paul wrote and he said, you know, there is no foundation that no man can lay other than that which is laid as Jesus Christ. Later on he wrote, you know, the church is built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, but the chief cornerstone is Jesus and if you go to a lot of small towns, you'll see right on the corner of Main Street a building that used to be the bank. And there's a cornerstone, and the cornerstone is that which directs the way every other aspect of that building is built. How it moves vertically, where it moves horizontally, it all conforms to the cornerstone. So the apostles and prophets, whatever part they were in that foundation, were conforming to the chief cornerstone, who is Jesus. So we look at the various churches that exist today and ask, what is your authority? Is the authority of the apostles, the authority of Jesus through the apostles, displayed? The two oldest churches, the churches that have the longest history, of course, are Roman Catholic, 
and either you could call it Greek Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox. These originally were a single church until 1054. When Constantine became the emperor of Rome, the city of Rome was declining economically. It was no longer what it used to be. And so he decided to move the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to some other city. And he looked at several and he finally selected Byzantium. And there he drained swamps and built the city that came to be known as Constantinople. Opal means city, so it was Constant, Constantine City, like New York City or Kansas City. It was Constantine City, Constantinople, and that became the capital of the Roman Empire. Now, Rome is a Latin culture. Everyone speaks Latin. Constantinople, Constantinople was in the Greek world where everybody spoke Greek and so there were two cultures that just never quite came together even though they were a common church. They were the Catholic church. Catholic means universal. But as these two churches became establishments, they began to vie for who really is the real church. And finally in 1054, Silarius, Serialarius, who was the patriarch of Constantinople, and Leo the Ninth from Rome mutually excommunicated one another, <laughs> and they became two separate churches. So if we look at these churches, these ancient churches, since they're the most ancient, why not become one of them? What is their authority, and how consistent are they in following their authority? Roman Catholics and Greek Orthodox both say their authority is scripture and tradition. As a matter of fact, the Roman Catholic website, Beginning Catholic, says, remember that in Roman Catholicism we have two authorities, scripture and tradition. And the Greek Orthodox websites, if you turn there, will say, we are the ones that keep the true apostolic tradition uh, on and on. They both claim to have the apostolic authority, the apostolic truth. And they are consistent. They do not vary from that. Recently, I heard a an Assembly of God pastor, former Assembly of God pastor, who had become Roman Catholic. And in the interview, they said, what do you appreciate most now about being a Roman Catholic? He said, I don't have to interpret Scripture. The church tells me what it means. I don't have to do that anymore. And he found some strange security in that place. So if they're consistent... What about what they claim to be their authority? What we must do then is look at that and say within what they claim to be their authority are there contradictions. Most of us have seen on the news all of the things that are being said about the Catholic uh, scandal concerning the 
70 years in which boys had been sexually abused by priests in Pennsylvania. Frankly, many have said it's pedophilia. Most of it's not pedophilia, it's pederasty. Pedophilia is sex with a prepubescent boy. Pederasty is a post pubescent boy, so most of it is pederasty, but be that as it may. I heard a program discussing this, a Roman Catholic program, and it said, you see what's happening. Somebody, the devil, is trying to bring down the priesthood, and if you destroy the priesthood, the church is gone. And that would be the same view of Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox Catholic. And then I heard a caller call into this station and say, well, can you give me any biblical basis for the priesthood? And the Catholic apologist said, oh, yes. And he went to Acts chapter 20, which we recited this Sunday that we ordained elders, in which Paul called for the elders of Ephesus to join him in Miletus and said to them, shepherd, poimine, the Church of God, over which the Holy Spirit has made you Episcopos, overseers, which he purchased. Now, when he said elders, those really were priests. When I heard that, I figured he stepped back and said, wait a minute. Because the Greek word for priest is hierus. The word for elder is presbyteros, meaning an old wise man. Don't we have some young old wise men here? But it means an old wise man. I quickly searched through my Greek New Testament. There's not one single place in the New Testament that any church leader is ever called an hierarus. It is always presbyteros, poimene, or Episcopos, and usually those three words used in the same passage for the same group of men. By the way, here's an aside. I was listening to, uh, watching rather, a video of a professor from Dallas Theological Seminary, and someone had posed the question, is it all right to have women deacons in a Baptist church? And as he got into that discussion, he got to talking about pastors. He said, now in Acts 20, we have elders, we have poimene, shepherds, and we have episcopos. And those, those three terms were applied to the same group of men. But today we combine all of those into one man, the pastor. And I thought, horse feathers, I mean, what right do you have to do that? But anyway, there's absolutely no place in the New Testament that any church leader is ever called a hierus. But it is always most commonly presbyteros, elders, sometimes poimene, shepherd, and one instance by itself in 1 Timothy 3, the episkopos, meaning overseer. Now, here's an interesting thing. Three times in the book of Revelation, we hear this. You and I are a kingdom of Hierus, a kingdom of priests. Isn't that something? Not individual leaders, but we are all a kingdom of priests. We're priests to the world. We take the news. We intercede. There is absolutely no basis 
for calling elders priests. So here we have within the authority supposedly scripture and tradition, but a contradiction within that itself. The teaching that Mary and the saints intercede for us and so we pick a particular saint and we pray to him or we pray to Mary that they intercede for us years ago and I I've tried to look back to find somewhere on my bookshelves where this is I read an interesting quote by a Roman Catholic scholar who said the reason we pray to Mary is because she's a woman and God the Father and God the Son are men they're not as tender as Mary so we pray to Mary and she pleads with those two men to be gracious to us, that's a paraphrase. I, I tried to find that I couldn't, but I tell you, I read that some years ago. Should we look to Mary and the saints to intercede for us? Romans chapter 8 says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Alaleo. Kenneth Hagin says that's. Tongues, horse feathers, that's not tongues. <laughs> it cannot be uttered. Neither is it when I'm groaning in prayer. No, it is something that cannot be uttered. So the Holy Spirit, usually probably when I'm not even aware of it, is groaning over me. <laughs> and then later on in Romans 8, it says, Jesus Christ lives forever to make intercession for us. Either nine times or twelve times in the book of Hebrews, depending on how you divide the verses, Jesus Christ is described as our high priest who makes intercession for us. And in 1 Timothy 2, it says, there's one intercessor between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Where's Mary? Where are the saints? contradiction it seems to me between the word of God and their tradition matter of fact all the things taught about Mary one the perpetual virginity now early on in the church there was one church father that began to wrestle with the idea was Mary really a virgin all of her life did she and Joseph ever have a normal married life did they ever have conjugal relationships or was she always a virgin? And so they began to speculate about that and that idea began to be favored in some quarters, not all immediately. Did Mary and Joseph throughout their married life never have conjugal relationships? I conclude no, they did. Matthew one twenty five states concerning Joseph, he knew her not until she the Greek word is eos, until she had brought forth her firstborn son. Furthermore, ten times in the New Testament, Jesus' brothers are referenced and twice in Matthew 13 and Mark 6, his sisters are referenced. In those two passages, four of the brothers are named. Now, when I listen to Roman Catholic apologists, they say, oh, well, really, they were cousins. 
The Greek word for the brothers is adelphos, which means brother. For sister, it is adelphe or adelphi, the plural. Those mean brother and sister. If it was kinsman, why not use the word for kinsman? It just doesn't make sense. It seems to me tradition is contradicting Scripture. Mary's immaculate conception. Now, because Roman Catholics believe in original sin, in other words, every baby that's born is born with the guilt of Adam's sin. You're born with it the day you come out of the womb. You have original sin. Now, Jesus could not have been born with original sin. He is sinless. And so we decided that Mary's mother, St. Anne, gave birth to Mary, and a miracle happened. So original sin was not passed on to Mary. Therefore, she did not pass original sin on to Jesus. Well, I wonder why didn't you just do the miracle when Mary gave birth? Why would you have to go back one generation? But anyway, that's a belief. That was not proclaimed as Catholic dogma until 1854 when Pius IX declared that that is Catholic dogma, the Immaculate Conception, where, anywhere in Scripture, do we find that? And then the Assumption of Mary. Somewhere around the second or third century, I've been reading some church fathers lately, I can't remember which one, but began to speculate, did Mary ever die? I wonder if she did, where she might be buried. And then began to speculate, was she like Enoch who was and then God took him? Or like Elijah who a chariot came down and took him away? Those two never died. Mary probably didn't die either, but she was assumed into heaven. And so that began to be widespread, but that was not declared Catholic dogma until November 1st, 1950. Think of that. <laughs> Yet that now has to be believed. Now surely, if the role that Mary occupies today and the role that God intended for her to occupy in the church, there would have been something said about that in the New Testament. But the last place you find Mary even mentioned is in the upper room where 120 people were gathered together on the day of Pentecost, and she is never mentioned again. If she occupied this role, why? is the rest of the New Testament not even mention her. Even though Roman Catholics and Greek Orthodox, both who hold these views, are extremely consistent in what they claim is authority, and they follow it, I find contradictions in their authority. So I am not able to say this is the authority of Jesus. Neither of them can be the model for any church I help plant, nor any church I could say, let's join them in order to fulfill John 17. What about 
Protestant churches. I could go on and I'll accept the papacy. One thing that divides Roman Catholics and Greek Orthodox today is the papacy. The Greek Orthodox won't accept the Pope. The Roman Catholics say you have to. Anyway, that's beside the point. But if neither of these can be my model, if I cannot join any of these, what about Protestant churches? Remember Martin Luther when he was teaching the book of Romans came to that verse that said, by faith you are saved and that not of yourselves, and so on. Now Luther was a man who was so overwhelmed with a sense of guilt and striving so much to find some kind of peace and know that God had accepted him. He put himself through excruciating things. He beat himself with a whip. He walked climbed on his knees up a long group of stairs to get to a chapel, deprived himself of food, could find no peace. But when he was teaching Romans and came to that one expression, you are saved by faith, he quickly took his pen and wrote the German word allein, faith only. That's it. And he began to take that position and ride in that direction. And time, among other things, came in great conflict with the Roman Catholic Church. And then in the Diet of Worms in 14, I believe it was 54, I'm not probably not accurate on that, he was excommunicated. He said, unless my conscience can be convinced by Holy Scripture... I cannot waver. And we're not sure he said this. Later newspaper reports said he did. Here I stand. We're not sure that was in the original. But he said, Scripture, and he viewed faith only as the answer. Now, after he began to start down the road, he said, well, what does the New Testament really teach about the church? And when it doesn't really teach about salvation, he started down the road toward the New Testament church. At one point, he seriously considered immersion, but he said sprinkling, of course, is such a tradition, it's hard to give that up. What about babies? If faith alone saves us, babies don't have faith. But can we give up sprinkling of babies? No. So they kept sprinkling of babies, and he said, when you sprinkle a baby... Faith is supernaturally imparted. It can't express it. It can't tell it to anybody. Probably isn't aware of it, but it now has faith because when you sprinkle a baby, faith is supernaturally imparted. My, my. <laughs> There's so much that we have to admire about Luther. But Luther started down the road toward the New Testament, and instead of going all the way, he stopped. And we can't criticize him. Probably this man was so punched drunk after he fought his way out of the Catholic forest he could only get so far. We have to admire the courage of this man. But he didn't go all the way. He said sola scriptura, but he too had sola scriptura plus traditions. I find that true as I examine every non-Catholic church 
every one of them was launched by someone who saw a particular doctrine that was being ignored and they sought to correct that and bring it in and start down the road. But every one of them stopped someplace along the way. They didn't go all the way. And so when they say sola scriptura, they're not consistent because it's not scripture alone. It's scripture plus, plus tradition, plus culture, plus whatever, but not sola scriptura. So as I look at the options, they are these. Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox because they are consistent. But within that to which they are consistent, I see such inconsistencies. I cannot accept either of those. And because I don't see any non-Catholic church as being consistent, I can't accept those either. So the only option left for me is the New Testament church. And that's the option at TCF we have chosen. Now you may look at the very same evidence I have looked at and come to a different conclusion. If I were to say to you, you don't understand, I'm 100% objective, I would be a fool, wouldn't I? Who is? Reading one early church father this week, he, he wrote this, the eye can see everything except itself. <laughs> That's true of Jim Garrett. It's so easy for me to see the log in someone else's eye, but I can't see the mold here. That's why it's important for me to sit regularly before God and plead with him to audit my life. So if you've considered the same evidence I have and you have reached a different conclusion, that's no problem between us. <laughs> Remember in 1977, Dave Mason, not the one that sits on our back row, but a, the guitarist wrote this, or rather recorded this song, There ain't no good guys. There ain't no bad guys. There's only you and me. And we just disagree. And if you consider the same evidence I have and reach a different conclusion, it's no problem between us. We just disagree. And I very generously extend to you the right to be wrong. <laughs> Brother and sister, that's who we are. If we say we're perfectly there, we aren't. We're always pleading with God to show us anything in our church where Jesus is not Lord, but someone or something else is that we might repent and put him in that place. Dear God, forgive us. Should there be any pride in this church saying, look at us, oh God. Oh, God, it is only by your grace that we have the freedom to be who we are. And, Lord, as we look to the coming year, the various things that will be happening this fall, what a privilege it is to serve you. What a privilege it is to be in this body. 
And as the exhortation came forth this morning, oh God, how thankful we are for each other. The greatest gift we have is Jesus, and next is each other. We thank you for that. Oh God, I pray that you will give us wisdom and guide us as we seek concerning your will as to what we are to do and what we are to undertake as a church. That our reason, that your reason for our existence will be fulfilled. Through Jesus, amen. We're dismissed.